Why didn't people take Ezekiel's message seriously? They didn't believe Babylon would actually destroy them until it was too late. We'll explain why today. Also, you may have heard of the names of God before, but I'm willing to bet that you haven't heard the one from Ezekiel 7. You'll learn it today, though, on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a pastor and someone who is more than 25 years old, and I'll explain why that is an accomplishment. Brain studies have shown that the brain of a male does not fully develop until about age 25. And this means until you get to that age, you're just not able to think through the consequences of your actions, at least not as well as you will later. As someone who just went through that transition about six or seven years ago, I can say I actually see a lot of truth in that. Uh, When I reached that age, everything just kind of started to become more clear to me. The world started to open up. I was able to understand a lot more of how things operated. And whenever you're younger than that, I mean, you can learn about economics, you can understand about government or world history, or sociology, whatever you want to study, I could understand each of those things on their own, but it was around the age of 25, 26, suddenly I started to understand how they all fit together. And so the world just started to make more sense than it used to. Now, if you're not 25 yet, don't be discouraged by this. You know, everything I'm saying is actually good news for you. It means that you're you're just going to keep improving more and more from where you are, that you you have nowhere to go but up for right now. It's whenever you get over the age of 25 or 30. That's whenever it gets harder to do things, like learn a new instrument, memorize Bible verses, study a new language. Um, But also, if you're less than 25, I want to warn you about something, and this can apply to everyone, but particularly to people who are younger. It's something called the invincibility fable. Now, this is a thought pattern. I'm going to quote here from a psychology website. The invincibility fable is a thought pattern that is noted most frequently in teenagers. It's an egocentric way of thinking that is characterized by a belief of indestructibility, that they won't get caught when doing wrong, or that they won't be hurt or killed by by engaging in risky behaviors. And this is part of why teenagers do things that older people consider foolishly dangerous or even stupid. And this is believed to be partially caused by the incomplete development of the frontal lobe of the brain, which controls and mediates the understanding of consequences. So, um, in other words, in younger people especially, now this could apply to anybody really, but it's especially more true of younger people, people less than 25, that their brains are not as developed as they will be someday, and you're more likely to believe that nothing can hurt you, that you're basically invincible, or that everything is just going to work out fine no matter what you do. And this is why younger people will engage in riskier behavior. It's just like they think nothing's going to hurt them. Long-term consequences don't always factor in uh, whenever they're thinking about these things. And that's why I deeply encourage young people to always seek advice and wisdom from older people and to listen to it. Because whenever you're young, it's really easy to slip into this invincibility fable. You can slip into it so easily and just get in over your head before you know it. So I remember once as a child, I, I used to wrap empty Walmart bags around myself and I would jump off the couch in the living room. I would just 
I just hoped that they would open up like a parachute and then I would just gently float down. That was the idea I had in my head. Now, of course, it never worked. Um, so I decided it's probably because the couch just wasn't high enough. And so the Walmart bags, they didn't have time to fill up with air and just let me float down. The roof, however, that certainly had to be high enough, right? If I jumped off the roof, surely that would turn the Walmart bags into parachutes. Well, all I can say is it's a good thing that I grew up in a one-story house. And also, again, it was a huge accomplishment that I even made it to 25. Well, kids and teenagers are not the only people who have to worry about the invincibility fable. This was a myth that also existed in the minds of the ancient Israelites, the people of Ezekiel's day. They believed that God would just never let them be destroyed. In fact, that God couldn't let them be destroyed. And why did they think that? Well, they had Jerusalem, the city of God. They had the temple. It was the sacred space where Yahweh himself dwelt and interacted with mankind. And these were true facts. That This wasn't the age of the Holy Spirit indwelling every true believer. That came later. For right now, all that they knew was that it was the temple where you could always interact with the Holy Spirit. So they indeed had the one place on earth that you could go to to interact with God, the one place you always could, that you could know where he was. However, they were wrong about the fact that this would make them invincible, that this meant that, this meant that God would never allow them to be wiped out. The invincibility fable had caused Israel to engage in riskier and riskier behavior, more and more rebellious to God, until they were no longer going to have God's divine protection. And this is what Ezekiel is going to seek to convince the people of today. We're, we're going to cover chapter 7, where Ezekiel makes this case, and chapter 7 ends the second part of Ezekiel. I consider it the second part because chapters 1 through 3, that was Ezekiel's commissioning, and then chapters 4 through 7, that was Ezekiel telling Israel that destruction is coming and why it's coming. And then chapter 8, that's going to begin a massive vision that goes on for four chapters. So today's lesson ends another section of Ezekiel and it prepares us for what is to come. Ezekiel is going to make clear today that Israel is not invincible. Just because you have God's name on a building in your city, it does not mean that you can do whatever you want. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Ezekiel 7. And I'm going to be using the ESV version today, as I always do. And um, just one more note before I start on today's verses. If you remember last time, Ezekiel delivered an oracle to the mountains or to the high places of Israel. And that was chapter 6. In chapter 7, this oracle is directed to the land of Israel. So Ezekiel 1 verses 1 through 4, The word of the Lord came to me. And you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity. But I will punish you for your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, like I said last time, Ezekiel chapter 6 and 7, they're a bit of a lull in the narrative. And that's why I'm kind of flying through these chapters. I'm not dissecting them. We're just, we're getting through one whole chapter per lesson lately. And that's a little different for us. But th these chapters, they repeat a lot of things that you've already heard before. And, and much of it's also self-explanatory. 
So we've read like the sentences I just read. We've read some of these same types of sentences already, like this phrase that my eye will not spare, that I won't have pity. The same phrase that he used back in chapter five when he was referencing the death penalty in the law of Moses. So what I'm going to do here today, I want to focus my attention on the elements that we haven't read before. For example, God accuses Israel here of abominations. Now, other than idolatry, this is one of the more, more, somewhat more specific of the types of sins that Ezekiel has co- accused uh, Israel of so far. Um, so abominations, it's the Hebrew word toebah, and it just basically means a disgusting thing. So something that's ritually unclean or perhaps ethically wicked, something that God finds repulsive. Um, and I said it's it's somewhat more specific. It's not even entirely specific because a lot of things can be considered an abomination. The word abomination is used 117 times in the Old Testament. And 41 of those are in Ezekiel. That's more than any other Old Testament book. Um, Deuteronomy, that's another book where that word is pretty common, uh, as well as in Proverbs. So like I said, abomination is a large category of sins. It's not extremely specific what God is referring to here with it. From my understanding, kind of like in the context here, I think it relates a lot to idolatry and the worship practices of Israel. And this is probably the chief thing that has caused Israel's punishment. It's the mishandling of spirituality, both in the the true religion of Yahweh, but also by incorporating the false religions of the world. Now let's go on to the next set of verses, verses 5 through 9. Thus says the Lord God, Disaster after disaster, behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitants of the land. The time has come. The day is near. A day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. This will be the area of the chapter where where I have the most to say, I think. Um, First of all, this is the most poetic part of Ezekiel that we've read so far. It sounds almost musical in its repetition. The, 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 The time has come. The day is near. You know, it's almost like a song. But this is not a happy song. Ezekiel is getting more and more emotional, more and more animated, because he's prophesying the end of Jerusalem, and nobody is taking it seriously. He's saying, the end is near. The end is coming. And the people, they're kind of shrugging. They're saying, oh, well, yeah, I know that God is going to judge the world someday. Like, we know there's a day of the Lord that is still to come. Well, Ezekiel is not trying to tell them about the day of the Lord. He's trying to talk about the day of the sword, the day that Ezekiel is telling them about. And it's right around the corner. And that's why this section of scripture, it's so repetitive compared to the rest of the Bible. You know, if you read the prophets, um, especially whenever you read Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, it can kind of feel like every chapter, one after another, it's, it kind of feels like more of the same. You know, I feel I can feel that way a lot of the time as I'm reading through them. That That's part of why I'm doing this Bible study series on one of those books. I want to take some time to dig down into each chapter individually and to ask the question, what makes this chapter special? Like, like, what would our Bibles be missing if this chapter wasn't there? And back in 2015 or 16, I, I back then I even did my own personal study of Ezekiel. I spent a few months where I just, every day, I'd just go through um, one chapter at a time. 
I would try to look out, look at what stood out specifically on each chapter. And, and I was able to do that with the whole book pretty well, except for chapter seven. I, like, I remember all the way back then, I was actually struggling to write notes on chapter seven because this chapter, it, it's kind of just maybe what you'd call generic Ezekiel or generic prophecy. Many ideas here are just repeated from other chapters. But still, I had to ask the question, why? Like, why is Ezekiel being so repetitive? And there's an answer to that question. It's because Ezekiel, he's trying to get their attention because they aren't listening. They believe the invincibility fable. They think that they're bulletproof. When Ezekiel later talks about how God is going to judge Tyre or how God is going to judge Sidon, he's able to say that in just part of, of just one chapter because nobody questions why God would judge Tyre. But when Ezekiel says that God is going to wipe out Jerusalem, suddenly the people just laugh it off. They, they say, oh, well, maybe someday, Ezekiel, maybe someday, you know, in the day of the Lord, he'll judge Jerusalem. No, Jerusalem's judgment is not waiting until the end of the world. It's happening in the near future. The New International Commentary on the Old Testament for Ezekiel, it's by Daniel Block, and it says this, Ezekiel's accent on imminency and the urgency of his tone represent his reaction to public indifference and the refusal to, to take the divine threats seriously. So in each of these Ezekiel lessons, I've given you a word of the day. And today's word of the day, it could be imminency, this idea of nearness, of urgency, the attitude of this chapter. It's sound the alarm. You know, if Israel was the Titanic, then they have seen the iceberg up ahead, or Ezekiel has at least. He's seen it up ahead and he's ringing the alarm bells. The ship is not going to have time to turn before it strikes it. You know, this chapter is, is not repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as people used to say. The message of this chapter, it's of the book of Ezekiel, he's saying, it's too late to repent. The end is near. And then one more note on this section of verses. Um, I just want to comment back on the last verse we read. You know, let me read it again. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. God has said multiple times already in the book, then you will know that I am the Lord. But this time, God adds on two words, who strikes, the Lord who strikes. This is actually one of the names of God in the scriptures. Now, if you've ever done a study on the names of God, you know, a lot of those names, they would be familiar to you. Jehovah Jireh from, from Genesis 22. Uh, that was when God provided the ram for the sacrifice instead of Isaac. Je Jehovah Jireh means the Lord who provides the Lord, our provider. In Exodus 17, 15, we learn God's name as Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner or our covering. In Judges 6, we learn about the Lord, our peace or Jehovah Shalom. In Jeremiah 23, 6, we learn Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Psalm 23, it gives us Jehovah Ra, the Lord, my shepherd. Uh, there's the Lord who heals, that's Jehovah Rapha. I forget just how many of these there are in the Bible, uh, but if you want to learn them, uh, Google it. Look, just search it up on Amazon. There's lots and lots of books. There's Bible studies, group studies out there on the names of God. They're good, good stuff. However, I would doubt that most of them include the name of God that we read here in Ezekiel 7. Jehovah Maka, the Lord who strikes. In fact, I, I even looked up some of those Bible studies. <laughs> I just typed it into Amazon. I typed in names of God study. I looked at the top results. I mean, there's tons of books on this. And I went to their tables of contents to see which names that they covered. And you know what? I didn't see the Lord who strikes listed anywhere 
<laughs> they go through, you know, usually they'll go through like a dozen names. And you know what? The Lord Who Strikes that never made it in the top 12. And I wasn't surprised. I'm not even trying to be down on these books. Like I said, this is a worthwhile study if you want to go buy one of these books and learn it. But, 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 let's just talk for a minute about why we don't see The Lord Who Strikes in any of those chapter titles. And it's pretty obvious whenever you look at what they did pick. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals me. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. These are all positive and happy and joyous things about God. They make us feel good. And getting to know God should make us feel good. But God is not just warm and fuzzy feelings all the time. Sometimes God punishes sin. Sometimes God disciplines me. Sometimes God has to take me to the woodshed. And, and that's another aspect of God that we shouldn't just ignore because it doesn't make us feel the warm fuzzies. You know, not, not trying to be too hard on these books, but I think this is also why ancient Israel had gotten in such a mess and they couldn't take God seriously. They believed in God, okay? They 100% believed in God, but they only focused on the parts of God that they liked, the parts that they agreed with. They weren't thinking of him as a God who would hold them accountable a God who might destroy their city. So then a few, you know, hundred years later, crazy Ezekiel, he starts laying in the street, building a model city, showing how it's going to get destroyed. And the people, they just kind of shrug it off. They wonder why he's being so mean, so negative. <laughs> you know, if it, they'd probably say things like, Ezekiel, I don't appreciate your tone. Ezekiel, you're not being very loving. They might have said, oh, I think God is love. He's not going to say something that would give me the sads. So these people, they have a problem with comprehending a God of justice. They no longer had a fear of the Lord, a healthy fear of the Lord. It was gone from their society, just like it's gone from our society. And I feel like one of the causes of that is that our Bible studies, they are marketed toward the things that people want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And that results in an incomplete view of God, which, as we see in this chapter, that's a dangerous thing. And whenever we say we love God, I, you know, I want us to, say, to mean that we love all of God, every aspect of God, not just the parts that are the most fun to talk about, but everything of who God is. I love God today. I love and praise Jehovah Maka, the Lord who strikes. And I hope you do too. All right, so now let's read the next couple of verses. Uh, verses 10 and 11. Behold the day, behold it comes. Your doom has come. The rod has blossomed, pride has budded, violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth, neither shall there be preeminence among them. Now, what is this about a rod? Well, this is considered the most difficult part of the chapter to interpret. Even by the time of Jesus, they were already debating by that point. Like, how is the best way to interpret the meaning of these verses? Now, to me, it seems a little clearer if you just kind of look at the biblical symbolism, like when it talks there about a rod budding. This calls back to a specific place in Scripture, the budding of Aaron's rod back in number 17. And we won't turn there and read it, but in number 17, Aaron's rod miraculously sprouted, and this was, this was God's sign of Aaron's leadership. This was God confirming to the people that Aaron was meant to lead them. And the people, the people are a little confused about the use of this phrase in Ezekiel 7, because it sounds like it's saying negative things about leadership here. But that's actually the point of this leader. It's, it's referring to King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. It, his rod has now blossomed. He's been put 
in authority over Israel. He's been put in charge now. You know, it also mentions Nebuchadnezzar's chief characteristic here, which is pride. It says, the rod has blossomed and pride has budded. Nebuchadnezzar's main characteristic, it's his pride. You can, you can read all about it in Daniel 3, where he has a statue built of himself and he commands everyone to worship it. Or maybe Daniel 4, where he brags on himself so much that God curses him for seven years. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's also kind of a precursor to the Antichrist. Like there are many parallels between Nebuchadnezzar and this future world leader that we often call the Antichrist. And the Antichrist's main descriptor, okay, the one characteristic that shows up about him more than anything else, it's his prideful boasting. So to me, it's clear that God is telling Israel in these verses that your doom is coming by a prideful leader. Now, there might be a lot of difficulty in like how to interpret each of the words in this section from the original Hebrew, but their overall meaning, it's pretty clear to me, Israel's doom will come by a prideful leader that God is already preparing as his fist of judgment. Now, some people question this idea that God would use an evil person, but I'll just remind you that God can use anyone. Like God uses you and I, and we aren't perfect. And God is using Nebuchadnezzar here to punish the Israelites. Um, God can use whoever he wants. As it's been said, God can write straight with a crooked pencil. I didn't make that up, but I love that quote. It, it means that God can use anybody, even someone as bad as Nebuchadnezzar. He can, <laughs> If he can use you and me, he can use anyone. I kind of broke up the section so far, uh, depending on what Ezekiel says is coming. The first four verses, they say the end has come. Verses 5 through 9 say evil has come. Verses 10 and 11 say the day has come. The day of Israel's fall is here. And Ezekiel just has to keep harping on this because, you know, as I said, the people believed, they believed in a generic judgment day that was far off in the future for the whole world. But they didn't think God would be destroying Jerusalem and its temple before that. So Ezekiel is telling them that day has already arrived. Uh, not the day of the Lord, but the day that Jerusalem will fall. It's already here. That day has come. And in the next two verses are going to say, the time has come. So let me read those, verses 12 and 13. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn. For wrath is upon all their multitude. For the seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live. For the vision concerns all their multitude. It shall not turn back. And because of his iniquity... None can maintain his life. Now, these phrases, a lot of these are callbacks to the day of Jubilee, which is described back in Leviticus 25. Maybe you've noticed as we go through Ezekiel, we reference Leviticus a lot. One of the reasons for that is that Ezekiel himself was a Levite, if you remember. He was a priest. So Leviticus was probably one of his favorite books of the Bible. Um, a lot of the things he says are callbacks or, or we could say cross-references to that book. Uh, he references the day of Jubilee here with his vocabulary and his phrasing. So on the day of Jubilee, one of the things that happened was that all the land was returned to the families who, that it was originally allotted to. And all the servants, they were released from their servitude. So it was kind of a reset. It came around every 50 years and it was just kind of a reset for society. It kind of kept things equitable among the tribes, or among the families of Israel, so that none of them was becoming too powerful over all the others. So in the verses we just read, what God is telling them is they're about to get a different kind of reset, kind of a dark jubilee. Instead of everybody having a little of everything, instead everyone's going to have a whole lot of nothing. Everyone's going to be losing something. 
no matter how rich you are, everybody is going to be reduced to nothing. I guess it'd be kind of like Karl Marx's communistic dream that, you know, everyone will be equal. But it'll also be like communism's reality. Everyone's going to be poor. If you want all my thoughts on communism from a Christian perspective, you can go back to like episode 14, 15, 16, somewhere in there. I was talking about uh, communism, socialism, all that in there. All right. Um, next, I'm going to read a huge chunk of verses. And we're, we're going to read from verses 14 through 22. So get, get ready for a large section here. They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle, for my wrath is upon all their multitude. The sword is without, pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword, and him who is in the city famine and pestilence devour. And if any survivors escape, they will be on the mountains, like doves of the valleys, all of them moaning, each one over his iniquity. All hands are feeble, and all knees turn to water. They put on sackcloth, and horror covers them. Shame is on all faces, and baldness on all their heads. They cast their silver into the streets, and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger, or fill their stomachs with it. For it was the stumbling block of their iniquity, his beautiful ornament they used for pride. And they made their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore I make it an unclean thing to them, and I will give it into the hands of foreigners for prey, and to the wicked of the earth for spoil, and they shall profane it. I will turn my face from them, and they shall profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. So Ezekiel describes here the psychological effects of the fall of Jerusalem. He says if you're in the city, you have two options. You can leave the city and die by the swords of Babylon soldiers, or you can stay in the city and die of famine or plague. That's what he says in verses 14 and 15. But let's say that you weren't home when Babylon attacked. Let's say you were on a trip or out running errands outside the city, and then Babylon rolled up. Well, verses in 16 and 17, they say that you could hide in the hills, uh, you could watch from afar, you'd lose your home, you'd cower and moan. Verse 17 actually says that your urine will run down your legs. Um, Ezekiel gets kind of gross sometimes, guys. And, and and that's what he means here. Where they translate it that your knees will turn into water, it doesn't actually mean there that you'll go weak at the knees. Uh, if you look at the original Hebrew, it's even more graphic than that. He says you'll pee your pants. And despite Babylon's invasion here, God doesn't present the Babylonians as the enemy. You know, clearly the Babylonians are the ones holding the swords, but Babylon is not the enemy, and God is not the enemy. God presents the Israelites as the enemy. They are their own worst enemies. Because as God says in verses 16 through 18, even if they could escape Babylon, they can't escape their guilt. They can't escape themselves. This invasion is not Babylon's fault. It's their own fault. Verse 19 and on relates the other things that the Israelites are going to realize very soon how worthless they are. He says your money is worthless. It can't feed you. Your money can't do anything for you when God comes against you. You know, many a millionaire has realized this when they get the results from the doctor. Um, not that not that something like cancer diagnosis, That's not, I'm not saying that's the punishment of God. I'm just saying there are some things that money can't fix. You know, materialism, that can only get you so far. It can't stop death. And, and the false gods that they had trusted in, <laughs> melted, made of melted down silver and gold, those gods can't do anything for you. God says that if you exalt these idols, I'm going to let the Babylonians in and let them clear the idols out. And that kind of echoes the previous chapter. 
he says, I'll let the, the Babylonians destroy the idols. Verse 21 calls, calls them the wicked of the earth. And this phrase means basically the most evil people on the planet. And this whole thing is just going to be unthinkable to an Israelite. This, this is why it's repetitive. Like I said, it takes a lot to make this sink in. Like, can you imagine God saying to you that he's going to let the most evil people on planet Earth wipe you out? That would be really hard to comprehend. You know, you'd say, but God, they're worse than I am. They're the, they're the most evil people on the Earth. Why are you letting them win? You know, Habakkuk struggles with that question all through, all through his beautiful little three-chapter book. Why would God use the worst people on planet Earth to judge me? Well, like I said, God can write straight with a crooked pencil. God can use anyone. The Israelites shouldn't be so concerned with Babylon's sins. They should have been more worried about their own. Now let's look at the last few verses for today. Ezekiel 7, verses 23 through 27. Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and their holy places shall be profaned. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet, while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair, and the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way I will do to them, and according to their judgments I will judge them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Disaster upon disaster, one thing after another. Things are so bad, even the false prophets don't have anything good to say. The, the false prophets, they're those people who just always have nice things to say. They say, your best days are ahead. God just wants you to succeed. God doesn't get mad at anybody. God loves you no matter what you do. You know, the, well, the things are about to get so bad in Israel, even Joel Osteen couldn't fake a smile, okay? So then Ezekiel turns his lesson to the government leadership, the wicked king, the evil prince, where it says the people of the land. It's referring to the landowners, which means the elites. They are going to be paralyzed with fear. The people that you're supposed to turn to for help in the day of trouble, they won't be there to help you. In America, you know, if we are in distress, if a disaster happens, what do we do? Well, we call 911. We call FEMA. We call our congressman or congresswoman. And we demand action. The governor, he declares a state of emergency. Or, or maybe for you personally, you go to the emergency room whenever you're in trouble. What happens when all those fallback options are gone? What happens when the safety net isn't there? What happens when Lex Luthor is president and Superman takes a day off? That's the fear that Israel's going to face when Babylon shows up at their doorstep. Their leaders can't help them, and God won't help them. And in that day, if nothing else, then they shall finally know who the Lord is. He's the Lord who strikes. close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. Uh, first, let me just ask, do you like fake news? Well, if not, then you definitely do not want to check out my other podcast. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And on that weekly show, we just look at the past week of news stories. They're kind of a meta narrative of how the media covered those stories. And that one's a lot of fun. It's more focused on current events. So if you don't like fake news, then you definitely don't want to come listen to it. 
But if you like laughing at fake news, come join the fun. I try to drop new episodes of that one on Fridays. And there's no mailbag today. Um, we had a couple last time on the mailbag. And uh, if you have any comments for yourself on this chapter or something uh, from any of the lessons I've done, or if you just want to give me a recommendation on a subject you'd like me to tackle in the future, that email is crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. If you're listening on YouTube or Rumble, um, feel free to leave a comment and, and I can respond on those too. Uh, but if you have a response to something from a lesson, that this is where I would include that. In the, it's the mailbag section right here. And next time on this podcast, I actually plan to start something new. I'm, I'm going to start a four-part series on the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> now, that's kind of the pop culture name for them. It, it's time out there in Revelation 6. John has a vision of four horses and horsemen who show up to wreak havoc on the earth during the, the tribulation. So who are these horsemen? Or, or maybe more importantly, what do they represent? Well, we're going to start diving into that at the beginning, uh, beginning, beginning in our next episode. Uh, we're going to start with episode 26, and we're going to cover the first horseman. Then for episode 27, we'll be, we'll be back in Ezekiel. That's where we start that huge vision that takes up four chapters of Ezekiel. So for the next few months, we're just going to alternate between Ezekiel lessons and horseman lessons. So there's lots of prophecy just ahead on the Cross References podcast. And with this being episode 25, I thought I would just do a brief reflection on the first 25 episodes of this podcast. So we, we launched this show back in October of 2021. Um, but a year ago at this time, I was already starting to plan it, plan it out and work on it. Uh, I'm really thankful to Brian Sinnott. He's a European artist who created our theme song. Uh, he's known as Brainchild1987 on the, on the website Fiverr. Um, that's a website. It's a great website. I used it to connect with several different music production and graphic artists to make all the art that we use on the show. Uh, so that website, it's Fiverr.com. And Fiverr is spelled with two R's, F-I-V-E-R-R.com. So if you ever want to work on a podcast or if you just need like professional artistic help, I highly recommend that site. It was so helpful to me. I mean, you got to pay for it, but um, it's worth the money. So, you know, you, if you're just kind of operating out of your house, doing something solo, a project on your own, you can't afford to have your own personal graphic artist on staff for you. You know, if you can't afford that, a website like Fiverr, that is really, really helpful for getting started. So um, I started this podcast back in October, and I really wanted to do this as 30-minute episodes. But I have noticed, and I'm sure you have too, I can rarely keep it that short. <laughs> you know, If you've listened from the beginning, you might remember that I announced my intention at the start. That I, what I wanted to do was alternate between Bible studies, which have been these studies in Ezekiel that we're doing, and then random topics, also on things related to the Bible, but just random topics. And we're just, we're just now kind of setting into that routine because um, I've had more two-part episodes than I intended. You know, we did a two-parter early on on judging. We did a two-parter on the Christmas prophecies. We did a two-parter on socialism and, and two on critical race theory. So we've had more two-parters than I thought I was going to have. And um, that's resulted in my Ezekiel episodes. They've not been as regular as I had hoped they would be. Uh, but that said, I'm, I'm very happy with what we've accomplished with 25 episodes. You know, I don't, I don't create these to be tied to anything current. Because I'm thinking about the person who finds this podcast three or four years from now. Um, maybe by then I might be totally done with the Ezekiel series. And I'm, I'm off in some other book of the Bible. And, and maybe they'll want to start 
their own Ezekiel adventure and go back to the beginning. And so what I try to do is I try to keep these episodes in a format in which someone can jump into them at any time or if they want to go back a year or two and start from the beginning. That information is still going to be just as relevant as it was hopefully someday in the future. So um, I've only done two episodes that were just like explicitly about current events. One of those was, was episode 12 and another was episode 17. So episode 12, that, that was the one about this idea of mass formation psychosis. If you remember, that was a popular phrase. That was a popular topic for about a month back in January of 2022. And, and so far, that has actually been the most popular episode of the podcast. Um, I think that's the one I've received the most positive feedback on. So if you wanted to share the show with a friend, um, give them something, give them an idea of the show, like maybe at, at its best or, or just kind of that, that episode is a good conglomeration of all the stuff I like to do. I like to talk about digging into a, a location of the Bible and applying it to modern times and talking about current events if I can, but also talking about prophecy. And that episode just really has it all. I think that's a good one to share. And then I mentioned 17 also. That was the one about Russia, Ukraine, and where they kind of fit in with Bible prophecy. That was also a popular episode. And um, as far as my Ezekiel episodes go, uh, the one about Ezekiel chapter 4 in the 430 days, that was my most popular Ezekiel study uh, so far that I've done. I got quite a bit of good feedback feedback back on that one, and that was episode number 18. So uh, as far as my personal favorite episodes, I think I liked that Mass Formation Psychosis and the Antichrist. I think that was my favorite so far. Uh, I also really enjoyed studying on the socialism versus the Bible that I think that was 14 and 15 and early on episode four, the Bible prophecy starter pack. That is a great place still, I think to jump into this podcast because it sets the stage for so many other things that we talk about on here. So I just want to say, if you are enjoying the show, if you want to help us out, uh, please share this podcast with a friend. You know, I know this is not a podcast for everybody, but I think we all, you know, if you're a churchgoer, we all know somebody at our church who likes this kind of stuff in the Bible, especially people who really get into prophecy. So send it their way. Help us out. And I would really appreciate it. I've, I've held off on advertising the show so far because I wanted to get a lot of episodes out first just so that I had kind of a foundation for people to dive into if they want to. And, and I think kind of I'm at that point now. So I might start advertising it on Google or, or something soon. But, but my favorite form of advertisement it's whenever you share it with people, because then I know that you are finding value in it. And also that doesn't cost me anything. So <laughs> I'd appreciate it if you could help us out that way. Um, let's let's recap what we talked about so far today and, and then uh, get into a little bit of application from Ezekiel 7 as well. So we got through all 27 verses of this chapter today, which I, originally I was thinking I would break the chapter up. But, you know, we got through it all pretty well. And um, I try to keep the episodes all less than an hour. We were able to do that today. We were able to cover the entire chapter, Ezekiel 7. That's basically God explaining to Israel that they are not invincible. Israel believed itself to be invincible, that, that God would never let anyone wipe them out or take away their city. And, and that was kind of based in a logical position because they did have Jerusalem, which was the city of God. In Jerusalem was the temple. It was the key place on earth that God came to dwell. It was the place that God spoke to and interacted with humanity. The Jewish people were prophesied to bring a future Messiah. So obviously, 
The Jews could never be wiped out like as a race. They had a mission. They had a purpose on planet Earth. They believed in prophecy. However, they drew an incorrect conclusion. They thought that this made them indestructible. So they got careless. They got lazy in their spiritual life. And God had to emphasize to them through Ezekiel that no, Jerusalem and the temple, they were actually not off limits. They could be wiped out. Now, the Jewish people would remain, but they could lose ownership of their land. So they had a great responsibility, and they squandered it. You know, it didn't have to be this way, but they didn't properly steward the role that God gave them. And they had some severe consequences because of that. And by the way, I mentioned that their um, wrong belief in their infallibility, that it was somewhat logical. Well, that's because it was a logical conclusion. It was just founded upon a bad premise, a bad premise about prophecy. And this is an example of why it's so important to have the right eschatology. So in eschatology, that is a view of the end times. And, and there's a lot of variety on end times views among the, you know, within the Christian world. And, and I've always tried to be clear about where I stand. But, you know, just because I meet a Christian who disagrees, that doesn't mean they're not a Christian. You know, not at all. Because it's, it's, it's a secondary issue in regards to the primary things about, you know, salvation and Christian fellowship. So I can, you know, totally find standing shoulder to shoulder with any Christian on just about anything, even if we disagree on prophecy. Because like I said, it's, it's kind of a secondary issue. Um, but secondary doesn't mean it's not important, okay? It's not a meaningless issue. What you believe about the return of Jesus and about the end of the world that does have a huge effect. It has a huge effect on, on how you live your life today. You know, if you believe that the rapture could happen at any moment, that propels you to always live ready to go. You are always ready for Jesus to come back. I think this is the message of Jesus's parable in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. That's the story of the servants who didn't know when their master would return. And, and Jesus tells us that he's returning, but he doesn't tell us when. So therefore, we will always be ready for him to come back since we don't know when that is. You see, what you believe about eschatology, about the future, that can have a huge impact on your behavior in the here and now. So what's an application that we can take from this chapter? Well, I'm going to assume that you live in America for this, okay? Like me, like I do. But if not, it, it could still apply anywhere that you live. But I think this application, it has a special significance for the people in America. Here's what I would say. Do not believe that America can never fall. Now, I think most Christians will believe and acknowledge that America is not Israel, okay? That we're not we're not God's chosen nation that's <laughs> supposed to permanently re remain. Um, we don't have a scriptural guarantee that America is the permanent world superpower, okay? I think we all know this, but also there can sometimes be this maybe unspoken belief that since we're like the most Christian country on the earth, that we're kind of untouchable. You know, I think that's just kind of an unspoken thing, uh, just kind of an assumption or something that a lot of Christians kind of rely on, even just emotionally. But but it's actually not true. Um, that As far as us being untouchable, just because we're the, I would say, the most Christian country on earth. But that doesn't mean that we're infallible. Everybody alive in America today, we have lived through 
a period of American dominance on the world scene. Like we've been the most powerful country on planet Earth for, for generations now, um, for my whole lifetime. Now, China's big, but, but it has a weak economy. Its economy is too weak to overpower us. And then Russia, you know, for a while there, Russia was a contender for the, the top world superpower, but, but all that fell apart about 30 years ago. So for de- several decades now, we've enjoyed a privileged status as basically the most powerful nation on earth. And I do believe that's a blessing of God. Like, I do believe that God has blessed us because of our longstanding commitment to biblical principles, both in our, in our laws, in our, in our society's morals. And I'm not saying we've always been perfect. Like, we've truly had some atrocities in our past. But as you look back on our history, we have strived to improve. And, and for most of our country's history, it's kind of like we've steadily come into a greater alignment with the Bible. Um, not, not in the past few decades, necessarily. But over time, we were doing better. We were improving in a moral sense. But, but like I said, over the past few years, the past couple of decades, the past, I'd say the past 15 years especially, there has been a shift away from the biblical values that we were founded on, uh, especially starting in the 60s. But, but like I said, it's really exploded in the past 15 years. I don't, think, I don't think I even need to go into detail to demonstrate this. I mean, you see it every time that you check the news. So are, are there still a lot of great things about America? Like, do we still have a lot of Christians in America? Well, absolutely. You know, I drove through a town just a few weeks ago that I had never been to before. Totally unfamiliar with it. It is about, I don't, probably about a town of 10,000 people. Um, I was looking for a particular church there. And I kind of thought, oh, the town's so small. You know, I thought I could find the church probably just by driving around and looking for it. Uh, so I didn't even look it up on the map. But you know what? Come to find out, they had a church on every single street of this town, sometimes more than one. And, and they weren't just like tiny little country churches. They were big, beautiful churches. And um, not that a country church can't be beautiful, but I mean, they just, this was, the, the church put a lot of effort into having, I'm sorry, the town put a lot of effort into having beautiful churches, apparently. Um, you could tell that religious life was important in this town, you know, and you wouldn't, found, you wouldn't find a town like that in most countries of the world. There's countries where you aren't even legally allowed to have a single public church in the whole nation. There's countries where you can't have a public cross or any Christian symbolism where people can see it. There's, there's countries where, you know, you can technically be a Christian, but if you want to preach biblical ethics, it, it would violate hate speech laws over there. So there's countries like that all over the place. But then you have America, where church is so popular, we have towns that have a church on every street. So you can say a lot of great things about this country from a Christian perspective, but let's just remember, don't let that make us believe that that makes America infallible. Don't let it make you spiritually lazy and think, oh, well, you know, we don't really have to try. God's just going to take care of us. It doesn't really matter what we do. Don't do that because that's the trap that Israel fell into. They thought they could just kind of do whatever they wanted. And that since they had the temple and the word of God, it just meant that God was going to sustain them through anything. Now, do we think that just because we print the most Bibles, that we send the most missionaries, that this is just going to automatically protect us from God's wrath? Because we just don't have a guarantee of that. Like, I fully believe that God has blessed us because of those things. Like, I think we are where we are today because we are the number one country for printing, sending gospel materials throughout the whole world. 
But just remember, that doesn't make us invincible. Like we may have the strongest military, we might have the most nukes, we might have the greatest economy, but don't put your trust in that because none of that stuff makes us invulnerable. At any time, if God wanted to, you know, either because of our rebellion or for just whatever reason, God can diminish America's role. Like I think he already is, you know, to be quite honest. I don't, I don't actually expect that America is going to remain the top dog on the world scene throughout my whole lifetime. I think our best days are already behind us as a nation. Now, hopefully not. Hopefully I'm wrong about that. But I'm just speaking from someone who's observing the current trajectory. You know, we still have a lot of great qualities. But God, we got to remember at the end of the day, he can do whatever he wants with us. Whatever he needs to do. Whatever he needs to shift around and change on the world scene. He, he can do whatever he wants with us. We have less of a guarantee than even ancient Israel did that we're going to be around long term. You know, America is not even mentioned in Bible prophecy. Now, does that necessarily mean that we're long gone by the time the Antichrist shows up? Who knows? Maybe, maybe not. But I'm just saying we can't be sure. And that's what we have to remember. We have no guarantees. So let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we're invincible, which is what ancient Israel did. You know, this is why Ezekiel sounds so repetitive in the first half of the book. This book is 48 chapters long. In the first half is just trying to convince Israel that it is going to fall. Now, why did I pick Ezekiel instead of one of the popular books, you know, like John or Romans or Proverbs? Why did I, why did I do this book, Ezekiel? Well, Ezekiel doesn't have a lot of studies like this. I mean, it does, but not in comparison to some of the other books of the Bible. You know, there's lots of studies on every book of the Bible, but Ezekiel is just not one of those that gets a lot of attention. And I, would, I don't expect there's a huge audience who wants to hear about the judgment, the doom and gloom of Ezekiel. But remember, we shouldn't just read the parts of the Bible that we like. What we should do is try to learn everything in the Bible. We shouldn't just learn the names of God that pertain to warm feelings or the things that God does for us. We need to learn all the names. We need to learn as much about God as we can, whether that results in a greater love of God or a greater fear of God. And if you do it right, those two things go hand in hand. Thanks for listening to the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that you cannot use a Walmart bag as a parachute no matter how high you jump.